intellects, vast and cool and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes, and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. And early in the twentieth century came the great disillusionment. The planet Mars, I scarcely need to remind the reader, revolves about the sun at a mean distance of one hundred and forty million miles, and the light and heat it receives from the sun is barely half of that received by this world. It must be if the nebular hypothesis has any truth older than our world, and long before this earth ceased to be molten, life upon its surface must have begun its course. The fact that it is scarcely one-seventh of the volume of the earth must have accelerated its cooling to the temperature at which life could begin. It has air and water and all that is necessary for the support of animated existence. Yet, so vain is man and so blinded by his vanity that no writer up to the very end of the nineteenth century expressed any idea that intelligent life might have developed there far, or indeed at all, beyond its earthly level. Nor was it generally understood that since Mars is older than our Earth, with scarcely a quarter of the superficial area and remoter from the sun, it necessarily follows that it is not only more distant from time's beginning, but nearer its end. The secular cooling that must some day overtake our planet has already gone far indeed with our neighbor. Its physical condition is still largely a mystery, but we know now that even in its equatorial region the midday temperature barely approaches that of our coldest winter. Its air is much more attenuated than ours. Its oceans have shrunk until they cover but a third of its surface. And as its slow seasons change, huge snowcaps gather and melt about either pole and periodically inundate its temperate zones. That last stage of exhaustion, which to us is still incredibly remote, has become a present-day problem for the inhabitants of Mars. The immediate pressure of necessity has brightened their intellects, enlarged their powers, and hardened their hearts. And looking across space with instruments and intelligences such as we have scarcely dreamed of, they see at its nearest distance only thirty-five million miles sunward of them, a morning star of hope, our own warmer planet, green with vegetation and gray with water with a cloudy atmosphere eloquent of fertility, with glimpses through its drifting cloud wisps of broad stretches of populous country and narrow, navy crowded seas. And we men, the creatures who inhabit this earth, must be to them at least as alien and lowly as are the monkeys and lemurs to us. The intellectual side of man already admits that life is an incessant struggle for existence, and it would seem that this, too, is the belief of the minds upon Mars. Their world is far gone in its cooling, and this world is still crowded with life, but crowded only with what they regard as inferior animals. To carry warfare sunward is indeed their only escape from the destruction that generation after generation 
creeps upon them. Before we judge them too harshly, we must remember what ruthless and utter destruction our species has wrought, not only upon animals such as the vanished bison and the dodo, but upon its inferior races, the Tasmanians, in spite of their human likeness, were entirely swept out of existence in a war of extermination waged by a European immigrants in the space of fifty years. Are we such apostles of mercy as to complain if the Martians warred in the same spirit? Martians seem to have calculated their descent with amazing subtlety. Their mathematical learning is evidently far in excess of ours, and to have carried out their preparations with a well-nigh perfect humanity. Had our instruments permitted it, we might have seen the gathering trouble far back in the nineteenth century.